This is the America's Quarterly Podcast. I'm Brian Winter. Peru is on its sixth president in six years. And now, Dina Boluarte's popularity is in the low teens as she faces multiple challenges. Is there any end in sight to the country's long political crisis? I think uh, this is really an implosion of institutions in Peru. Citizens are bewildered and I'm very puzzled with what's going on. And once again, I've heard some people ask for early elections as the way to once again be able to get rid of this situation, this stalemate that is, I think, more complicated today than it was perhaps uh, 12 months ago. As 2023 draws to a close, there are several bright spots around Latin America. Peru, unfortunately, is not one of them. It's a country facing a staggering number of risks in both politics and the economy. And today on the podcast, we thought we'd take a step back, try to understand what's going on and forecast whether there's any chance in the near term that things might improve. On the political front, It's been 12 months since then-President Pedro Castillo tried to illegally dissolve Congress. That backfired. He was removed from office and sent to jail. But things have also been tough for his replacement, Dina Boluarte, Peru's sixth president now in six years. Boluarte has an approval rating of only around 10 to 15 percent and is now facing potential charges related to her government's heavy-handed repression of protests earlier this year. On the economic front, the old adage that Peru's economy could survive and even thrive amid political uncertainty, well, that hasn't been true for a while now. Peru appears to be in recession. The country has also been hit hard by El Nino, and a lot of foreign investment in the crucial mining sector is on hold. So is this a case where Peru is touching bottom right now and 2024 might see a recovery? Is there any end in sight to the political uncertainty? How are foreign investors, including the Chinese who are building a huge port outside Lima, reacting to the current outlook? Our guest is Luis Miguel Castilla, a political consultant and a former finance minister between 2011 and 2014 as well as a former ambassador to the United States. Miguel, welcome back to the AQ Podcast. Thank you, Brian. It's a pleasure being here again. Miguel, last time you were here, about a year ago, you said, and I quote, it's possible we'll be talking a year from now and things will still be in a stalemate. How would you describe Peru's political and economic situation a year on? (laughs) I'm, I'm sorry to say that I was uh, I was right. We're still in a stalemate, and it seems that uh, very intense, almost 12 months have gone by, and things are as messy as they were a year ago. But the thing that has changed, actually, for the worse, has been the the economy. We're we're facing a recession, and 12 months ago we were expected to grow at a reasonable pace, but. Everything has happened. Uh, a lot of things have happened in the past 12 months from uh, social uh, unrest after uh, President Boluarte was sworn in to uh, being stuck by cyclones, uh, being stuck by a very, very um, 
complicated confidence crisis by the El Nino phenomenon, and now a current crisis that once again threatens uh, Peru's democracy. So um, now things look more complicated because the economy is doing worse, although things may improve once El Nino phenomenon fades away. It's been worse than you expected. Mm, I think it's different worse because the economy is worse, but I think the past 11 months have reminded us that Peru's problems are primarily political and institutional. And if we don't get that fixed, then that's going to affect our, our prospects for the future. I want to go deeper on the economy, but before we do, let's talk more about the politics. When we spoke a year ago, it was in the wake of these deadly protests that shook the country, shook President Boluarte during the early months of her term, following Pedro Castillo's removal from office. These protests generated international headlines, very dramatic. The government, the Peruvian government, responded with force. Over 50 people were reported to have been killed. Human rights organizations widely described that reaction as excessive, heavy-handed on the part of the government. A year on, where is the Peruvian street right now? I mean, is this a situation where we can expect a spark to light this fire again at any given moment? What's your sense? The street is calm, and what may change these things are two issues, one political and, and one economic. The political one is the decision by the tribunal to free uh, Alberto Fujimori, who is serving a 25-year-long sentence, and that may spark street protests. Uh, people still, uh, Fujimori remains one of the main uh, political cleavages in, in the country and sources of division. So in spite of almost... Over 20 years of him stepping down, there's still two big parties in Peru, the anti-Fujimoristas and the Fujimoristas. And that may spark reactions. And the other one is the economy, because the economy is doing really poorly. This is the worst, the longest recession we've seen, three quarters with GDP negative growth. And we hadn't seen this in the past 31 years, excluding, obviously, the pandemic. And this has actually aggravated people's well-being. Um, so it's slow growth, high inflation, informal jobs taking over. So I think both are the key issues to watch. It's actually amazing, Miguel, to consider how many different areas could destabilize and are destabilizing Peru. And you've listed several of them. There's the economy. There's the street. There's El Nino. There's this question with the Fujimoris. Another one that we haven't really gotten into yet is this apparent dispute between President Boluarte and the country's top prosecutor, Attorney General Patricia Benavides. Trying to explain every detail of this would probably necessitate an episode of its own. <laughs> but how dangerous to governability and her hold on power is this situation? I think this is a very frail government that was able to withstand pressures for earlier elections based on a pact of survival. So both Congress and the government wanted to stay in office until 2026. And that has remained so until quite recently. And I think uh, 
to come up with this is really an implosion of institutions in, in, in Peru. Citizens are, are bewildered. I'm, I'm very puzzled with what's going on. And I, once again, I've heard some people ask for early elections as the way to once again uh, be able to get rid of this situation, this stalemate that is, I think, more complicated today than it was 12 months ago. We're in a very difficult position and the solution and the way out of it is not quite obvious for anyone now. Anything really could happen. Uh, and we may be talking, uh, you know, I don't want to predict anything, but uh, things are quite unpredictable. And this actually is uh, inhibiting any economic recovery because um, expectations are quite negative given all latest uh, events unfolding. Basically, the, the a turning point happened in Peru in 2016 when you had a government elected without a majority in Congress. That was a major shift that every government that hasn't had a majority in Congress or a coalition that supports it hasn't finalized its term. That's been our history for the past 70 years. You look way back in time, every single minority government or without a source of support in Congress has been either overthrown by a coup d'etat or hasn't finished its term. And so that is the bottom of, of these intense political instability and lack of governance that we're seeing in the country. If you look, Miguel, at recent Peruvian history, there was a 15, maybe 20-year period where things were going really well, at least from the outside. I mean, a period of political stability, economic growth, one of the fastest growing economies in Latin America, had a poverty reduction record that was also by many measures the best in Latin America. We're talking about the period roughly between 2000 and, and 2016. And then there was a period where the politics became bad and unstable, but the economy was still good. Uh, not great anymore, but still good. And you referenced that earlier. Now we've seemingly entered a new status quo where the politics are really bad and the economy is pretty bad, although not disastrous. I mean, we look at these numbers and the Economist Intelligence Unit, for example, forecasts a 0.3% contraction in 2023. The OECD expects 0% growth. But, and I came into this conversation thinking, okay, maybe this is, this is kind of the unfortunate new status quo for Peru. But what I've heard from you consistently throughout this conversation is the belief that both the politics and the economics could actually get much worse very suddenly. Am I mistaken? I think that any improvement in the economy and, and again, restoring sustained growth based on private investment confidence entails a solution to political problems. So if the political impasse and crisis doesn't get resolved, then we are doomed, I think, in spite of all the uh, opportunities that we have. So during this past year, for instance, Brian, given that a lot of talks have been uh, geared towards energy transition, Peru is the second largest producer of copper in the world. And there's a, a, you know, a scenario in which you can actually double global copper demand. And this may actually 
help accelerate growth in, in Peru. We also have a lot of infrastructure projects that are waiting to happen and fundamentals remain sound. So you have all of these opportunities that are there and Peru could easily grow, not perhaps at 6% rate, but definitely at 4 which is a lot higher than what we've seen. And we haven't seen growth rates that high in the past five or six years. But then again, the risk premium from very unpredictable politics is really the uh, bottleneck. My main concern, Brian, is that politics will make economy grow 2%. And a 2% growth rate for Peru on average for the next few years is something that is completely insufficient. So this is a, a very sad story of a country that got a lot of things right. Its policy framework is still correct and nothing fundamental has changed. But uh, it, it is really politics that really is acting as a major constraint for higher growth that we definitely need to be able to get rid of those three and a half million Peruvians that fell into poverty. And obviously the other portion of the population that is still uh, lagging behind. Miguel, you mentioned the potential that Peru has on mining in particular. And, you know, this is part of this broader moment that most of Latin America is poised to take advantage of right now. We've been talking about this a lot at America's Quarterly, both on, on the podcast and in the magazine. In some other countries around the region, in my conversations with investors in places like the United States and especially in Europe, you hear this willingness to assume some of this risk. <laughs> you know, you hear people, investors who say, well, yeah, no, I understand the politics are tough, but the truth is the region has the things that we need right now. And that's part of investing in emerging markets is being willing to live with a certain amount of risk. My sense, though, is that partly because of the strikes that we've seen and other disruptions at mines throughout Peru, that the equation in Peru looks quite different and that actually a lot of companies have put investments on hold or have been scared away altogether. I know that in your current capacity, you speak with a lot of people in the private sector, both inside and outside Peru. Is that your impression as well? Yes, but uh, the, the reason is, is different from other countries because usually what we've had in the past have been ill-managed social conflicts around extractive projects. But now the main obstacle for having more investment now, investment in mining, for instance, is a third of what it used to be uh, 10 years ago, is really red tape. Red tape and, and the government is very afraid to actually step in and, and promote uh, mining projects, simplifying all the regulations in terms of social licensing, environmental permits, because they're afraid they may sparkle opposition and re-trigger social conflicts again. So at a level you hear President Boluarte and her top administration officials promoting investment in Peru, announcing uh, reforms to uh, make investing in Peru easier by reducing the complexity of, uh, of all the regulations. But the reality is that is just rhetoric. And we're seeing that the government and officials, mid-level officials, are quite afraid of uh, making investors' life easier. And I think that's the main obstacle that is inhibiting the uh, further uh, 
materialization of projects that we see in Peru. One big ticket investment that is going ahead anyway is this port that the Chinese are building near Lima. What um, what is your read? Just looking narrowly at the question of Chinese investment, how, how have they been scared off by this current moment, or are there big projects that they're doing with a long term vision in mind? They're not scared. I think that the Chinese are are thinking long term. And for instance, the Chiang project is is a very important as a mega port. Just to interrupt, the, the estimate is that that port would cut the shipping time from 45 days to 35 days on average from uh, much of South America to China. Yeah. And so that is a project that is going on. And you see also the uh, Chinese uh, heavily vested in, in mining and in energy and in finance. Now, the, the interesting thing are, are two things are happening or three things are happening that may actually make Chinese investment you know, more difficult to, uh, to or, or, or there are issues that they need to confront. One is antitrust regulations. So there's an interest of Chinese of, of buying firms that uh, are selling. So there are antitrust regulations that they need to, uh, you know, uh, pursue. The, the, the other one is that there's uh, all sorts of Chinese. We have good Chinese firms. Uh, and I think the port of, uh, of Chiang is developed by a recently good big company, but there is a series of construction firms, second or third tier. They have replaced the Brazilian uh, Lavajato once. Uh, now we have the Chinese uh, construction firms that are quite opaque and very much involved in current corruption probes. So that's uh, a, a second concern. A third is that there is a big Worry by one of Chinese's main uh, investment in Peru, in Las Bambas, which is one of the largest copper mines in Peru, which is uh, has set some tax controversies with uh, the tax authority in Peru, given that most Chinese investments are funded by Chinese banks. This has up some um, concerns that uh, there may be some um, uh, tax um, avoidance schemes and given the nature of firms that, that belong to the same group, and uh, given that China is all, at the end, is backed by the Chinese government, by the Chinese banks, and everything is, is in a certain way tied to state-owned uh, concerns uh, in, in China, that is generating liabilities and tax debts and eventual controversies. And I think the fourth is that uh, I, I see other countries trying to finally see some of the opportunities that are here. You see uh, now more interest in Europeans bidding for new infrastructure projects. You have, for instance, the Dutch and uh, and the British and, and, other, and others. The U.S. are mainly absent, unfortunately, in this equation. And there's a lot of, uh, a lot of expectation about Peru hosting the APEC uh, meeting next year uh, uh, here in, in, in Peru and the Chinese president coming to Peru and actually uh, inaugurating the Chiang port. And this is seen, you know, with concern from the U.S. administration, but nothing is really being done. So I think the Chinese presence in Peru is getting more complex because of all these issues I've uh, outlined. But still, you have China being a very key long-term investment partner and, of course, our main trading partner. And that gives Chinese presence here a big standing in Peru today and, and in the foreseeable future. 
Well, let me ask you a provocative question. I mean, do the Chinese have it right? <laughs> Meaning, are they showing the vision necessary to invest in Peru right now and see past these political problems that we've been discussing and make these bets anyway? Or is it more complicated than that? And really what they're interested in is kind of a mercantilist approach where they're mostly focused on getting commodities in and out in a way that might not be affected by a change of government. I think they're very pragmatic, but I think it's becoming for them as well difficult to operate in a country which has regulations, which has antitrust concerns, that is um, trying to accede to the OECD and has to converge to OECD standards. And some of these policies go against the Chinese way of doing business. So I think it's a mixed bag. You have uh, the mercantilist approach, you know, commodity rent-seeking firms on the one hand, and you have more sophisticated uh, investors that are looking into Peru as a as a strategic partner in South America. They're looking to have more geopolitical presence here. I think overall, the bottom line is the Chinese, they're here to stay in, in Peru. Miguel, you, you've told me that you're a regular listener to the AQ podcast as well as a guest. We appreciate that. You know, therefore, that sometimes I like to play devil's advocate. My question for you is, as we kind of move to a conclusion here, what if this is actually as bad as it gets? What if, you know, as you yourself said, the economy bottoms out this year, we see a return to disappointing but modest growth next year. Boluarte is able to serve out the remainder of a term, you know, a very troubled term, the genesis of which was not so much her, but Pedro Castillo. That was what what sent us on this path in Peru. But the assumption is, you know, maybe this very fragile status quo will continue to hold together, especially as inflation comes down and the economy turns around. Is that in the field of probability in your mind? So that scenario is still possible, but then again, we will have elections and then fragmentation is still present. A thing that we haven't actually spoken about during this podcast, which has been the growing presence of illegal groups and transnational crime taking over vast portions of Peru and having political representation in Congress talking about illegal miners, we're talking about illegal everything, and they may have played uh, a role in next election. So I think uh, that the benign scenario is always possible, but I think having a weak government, having a crisis-prone country, lack of uh, representation, disgruntled citizens, we have more informal economy and we have more illegal activities taking hold of large portions of the country. So that makes me worry. What it makes me wonder is if what we're actually seeing at some level is a return to the old Peru, the Peru of the 60s, 70s, and 80s, which was a very unstable place for a very long time. And you can make an argument within that historical context that maybe the the Peru of the 90s, which was not a paradise, and is a, a separate episode, perhaps. But certainly the Peru of the 2000s and the early to mid-2010s may end up 
as more time passes, looking like an exception. Final question here. Do you see nothing on the horizon that could send the trend line going definitively in a more positive direction? Well, Peru is, is a country that that you have uh, outsiders surprising us. You know, Fujimori was the outsider in the 90s. Castillo was the outsider 20 years after. So who knows? We may have an, another outsider that may change course. But I don't want to end on such a negative note because it seems that, you know, it's a very... Uh, gloomy and, and, and serious scenario I'm portraying. And I think, you know, one has to look also, you know, in perspective. Peru has been able to withstand a very populist regime and, and a regime that wanted to change the whole system, wasn't able to do so. Talk about Castillo. We were able to control guerrillas and terrorist groups. And that has been um, something that Peru still cherishes quite a bit. We have a sound economy. We have an independent central bank. We have a constitution. We have, uh, no strong macroeconomic fundamentals. So we have openness. Uh, we have free trade agreements. We are members of different associations and, and international commitments. So I hope that all of this list is enough to be able to provide a blueprint for or a path so that when we get a leader, and that is has common sense and is able to actually put the country together, unify the country and pursue just reasonable policies. We just need reasonable policies and to tackle some of these big concerns. If that is something that we can elect in the future, then I think a better scenario may be ahead. Yeah, I hope so too. Miguel, thank you so much for joining us on the AQ Podcast. Thank you for listening to the America's Quarterly Podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, please leave us a review, give us a rating, and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. The America's Quarterly Podcast is produced by Luisa Franco and edited in partnership with Human Group Media.